Well, good morning. Let me invite you to put your phones away now and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Uh, you'll find that on page 849 of the Blue Pew Bible if you follow there. Um, and really with this texting platform, we are seeing this as just kind of an emergency protocol if we need to get in touch with you quickly, schedule changes. Um, I vow it will not become daily thoughts from Pastor Aaron coming to your phone. Uh, I can't promise that won't always be the case, but uh, I'll still just use Twitter from that and you can, um, so you know, no fear that we're going to start all of a sudden coming at you every day of the week. Um, but excited for this morning, this uh, Mark chapter 13 um, is a chapter that had always been on my radar when we started the Gospel of Mark. I, I knew that someday we're going to get to Mark 13, and I'm not going to be able to dance around it. And uh, the reason why it's been on my radar ever since we began is because it is probably the most difficult chapter in the book, let alone one of the most difficult in the Bible to interpret, um, while also being a topic that is usually amongst the most fascinating for people. So that's just like the perfect storm for a pastor, that like if nobody cared, it wouldn't matter, but it seems to be something that people care about and it's really difficult to interpret where Christians and non-Christians alike, so even if you like hate the sermon part of a uh, preaching part of a service, like today is probably one you're like, oh, I'll just go see what this guy has to say. And the reason is because the topic is prophecy and end times. It's famously known as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is going to give this teaching atop the Mountain of Olives, and all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, record this chapter, this discussion. Um, and the reason why I, it's just so fascinating for people is because if you read across history, really any time period of the church in the last 2,000 years, uh, you will find in the writing somebody asking the question as they look around at their cultural moment and go, is this, is this it? Is this the end times? Are, are we in it? And, and it's, this chapter is very much, and the whole discussion is very much related to signs, uh, looking for signs that tell us that we are in the end times. And it's very common today, maybe more common than ever with all the outlets and media you know, that we can get our eyes on, that, uh, it, that, that this might be a well-meaning inquiry from a friend who's a believer. Uh, you're just having a conversation, and you guys are talking, you're talking about the headlines of the day, and you're talking about all the things that are happening across the world, and it's just like an honest question, like, is this, are we in the end times? If you kick it up a notch, there might be a well-known speaker or an author who will use their platform to put forward their case that we certainly are in the end times. And this is usually where things get a little bit strange. Charts start getting wheeled out. We got pinpoints. We got uh, on the, the, the map of, of certain verses correlated with this event happening in the Middle East and, and this happening in that side of the world. And they get to the end and they go, guys, I have cracked the code. It's coming like, get ready um, and buy my book for 19.99, and I'll tell you more, that I really cracked the code. It hits even mainstream entertainment. I think even every year now, there is another movie that comes out where the plot begins um, in the apocalypse, in the end times, and a few people survive for whatever reason, but now you have the end of the world has come, and, and, we're, and we flock to the theaters to see it. We buy the books to read about it. Um, the most famous along these lines of the end times and probably the last generation was the Left Behind series. Um, so just, uh, you know, it, it really, I think, has gone a little bit out of style probably in the last 10, 20 years. But uh, if you have read at least one Left Behind book or seen one of the movies, raise your hand. Raise it high. I'd say that's probably about 60, 70 percent. Um, did you know in 1998, it's 21 years ago, 
The Left Behind Books occupied the first four spots on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time. First, second, third, fourth. And that's all books, not just Christian genre. It's fascinating. People love hearing about it, talking about it, discussing it. And, and oftentimes, I, I think these discussions that start in chapters like Mark 13 and the book of Revelation, and then they grow this life of their own. And it kind of drifts from the word, where the conversation we're having around here kind of was started there, but went way beyond there. And so everyone just kind of ends up confused. Like, where are we? What's going to happen? When's it going to happen? Is it happening now? Can I go on my vacation next summer before it's going to happen? <laughs> the Yankees are looking pretty good next season. Can we wait till October and just see if they pull it off? And so my hope is to just bring some clarity to the discussion and not to bring in my thoughts infused into this topic, but just to read God's word and see what it says. And so to that end, you might be a little disappointed coming in thinking that this was going to be an end time sermon. I'm just going to pull out the chart. There's no chart coming. But I challenge you to pay close attention because it's going to be a little bit of a different kind of sermon. Like it really is difficult to interpret. You have to read closely. We have to think through some things. And I challenge you just to hang with me this morning because it's difficult, but it's not impossible. Like, what's the Bible saying? So let's go. Let's read it. Mark chapter 13. Uh, we're going to cover this chapter in two weeks. This week will be part one. Next week will be part two. This morning, we're just doing the first 13 verses. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must be first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So I want to approach... Uh, kind of our time together a little differently maybe than I normally do. And I want to kind of give you the overarching theme up front that's going to kind of guide us and serve as a guidepost throughout this whole discussion, which will get pretty in-depth. Because Jesus is not saying these things just to kind of throw it out there and mess with their heads. He's not going out there like, I'm about to leave. I just want to give him something to think about and something to talk about. He's not just throwing a bone out there. He's very intentional with what he's saying. And in this chapter alone, we saw several, just in those 13 verses, but through the whole chapter, there are 19 imperatives. You know what that means? Like 19 calls to action. 
19 things that you can obey and observe and, and need to kind of hear, calls to action in the present in light of what's going to happen in the future. And the exhortations, I think, can all be summed up this way. Here's the theme. When it comes to the end times, be on guard, but don't be anxious. You notice the tension in that? Like those two kind of rub against one another, but they need to be taken together. Be on guard, but don't be anxious. So I have an illustration. It's my first time in three years using a prop. It might not go well, okay? But to just help us visualize this, I have ski poles. Let me start with this way. I've never been skiing a day in my life. (laughs) But I watch the Winter Olympics every four years, and I feel like I'm an expert at this point. Ski poles, why why do you use them for those who go skiing? Don't answer, I'm going to give you the answer, and if I'm wrong, just let me down gently after. Here's two reasons why I think you'd use ski poles, for balance and for speed. And so let's talk a little bit about the balance part. The reason you have a ski pole is to keep the two tandem together. If you veer to the right, this one's going to keep you on balance, keep you up firm. If you veer to the left, this one's going to keep you on balance and keep you up firm. You know what makes no sense is using one. One ski pole, from my observation, expert observation, um, would not do anything for you. It would not be helpful for you because you'll just constantly be falling to whatever side you don't have the pole. So they have to be taken together. And between the two, they're going to keep you upright as you go down the ski slope. So the reason why I say that, I'll probably trip over those, um, <laughs> is that these two commands, be on guard, but don't be anxious, have to be held together. And when it comes to the end times, we, we all tend to go off balance one way or another. We all tend to have one pole. The one way we get off balance is just to neglect it altogether. And most of us probably falls in that boat. Because we don't really have to think about the future, because things are so good in the present. Like, we almost only want the future to come. And so what happens is we just neglect it altogether. So no part of our lives is not thought about in light of the end times. That's one way to get off balance. The other way to get off balance is to just obsess over it. And to just everything you see, every headline you see, go, okay, that happened here, now this is happening there, and you just get consumed by the end times. And in order to avoid falling to either side, we need ski poles to keep the tension, to stand firm, be be on guard, but don't be anxious. And so I want us to remember that as we walk through this passage, okay? So let's kind of start walking through it. Um, Jesus and his disciples are walking out of the temple. That's how it starts. And if you've been here in recent weeks, you know that this has been a long day for Jesus and his disciples. It began with them arguing with the religious elite again and again at the entrance of the temple, starting, this is Tuesday morning of Holy Week. And then after that, they go into the temple, and Jesus gives some very heavy teaching to a great crowd about pride and humility. We talked about that last week. And now they're walking out of the temple. And you know what? They're probably a little tired. They're probably emotionally just exhausted. They're probably hungry. And as they're exiting, one of the disciples, Mark doesn't tell us who, fun fact, Matthew doesn't tell us who, Luke doesn't tell us who, like it's just like this guy just was let off the hook, right? One of his disciples walks out to maybe awkward silence and just goes, man, these are awesome stones. Like what great buildings that this great temple is. And and Jesus, who just got done teaching about the fact that we should not put too much stock in outward impressive appearance, is probably just like, okay. (laughs) Literally just spoke about this. But so he kind of gives them something back that they 
would not expect that probably made them speechless and made it for a little bit of an awkward walk to the Mountain of Olives. He goes, yeah, uh, I know. You see these buildings? These impressive, wonderful stones? There's a day coming where not one of them will be left standing. They will all get thrown down. Oh, okay. Didn't see that one coming. And then they get to the Mountain of Olives. Mount of Olives is a mile east of the city of Jerusalem. It's 2,700 feet above sea level, and it provides this great view of the city of Jerusalem. If you go to the Mount of Olives today, we have a picture of what Jerusalem would look like. I mean, it's a really awesome panoramic view. So if you think this is current day, if you think in the first century, the temple would stand out above everything else. So they're overlooking Jerusalem, which is really just to say they're overlooking the temple And Jesus' inner circle, who we know is Peter, James, and John, this time Andrew squirms his way in there, right? Very fascinating on the topic. So he's there too, and they come to him at the top of the Mount of Olives. They go, all right, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that tells us it's about to happen? Okay, so here's where we have to start digging deep into see what's actually happening, get a little granular with our reading, because in his answer... Jesus is going to give his longest, most extended monologue so far in the Gospel of Mark. So if you've been with us through Mark, you, you know how Mark has portrayed Jesus' words. It's been like one line at a time, two lines at a time, much more brief than the rest of the Gospel authors. But this time, Jesus is going to start speaking in verse 5, and he will speak to the end of the chapter. If you have a red-letter Bible, meaning that Jesus' letters are red, it's all red from verse 5 to the end. So if you're an observant reader who've been reading the book of Mark, you should go, okay, this is different. This is the one topic Mark does this. Interesting to think about. Why this one? And here's where the real debate and disagreement lies in Mark 13. Okay, hang with me. Is Jesus talking about the events that are going to happen in A.D. 70, which is 40 years from this conversation, or is he talking about the end of the age, the end times? Okay, so next question, what the heck happened in A.D. 70? Uh, Some of you know, I presume others do not. So what happened in A.D. 70 uh, that we know from history is that the city of Jerusalem was destroyed. And it was destroyed after an attempt of rebellion from the Jews of Judea, tried to rebel against the Roman Empire and get their own autonomous rule. Emperor Titus at this time, his father Nero just died, he took the reign and in response to the resur- in this insurrection happening in Jerusalem, he comes in and just levels it, literally. Kills tens of thousands of people, scatters the Jews, and destroys and then burns the temple. And it would never be rebuilt. So, major event in AD 70, that is where their autonomous civil religious rule ended under the Roman Empire. So, one interpretation is that everything Jesus says in Chapter 13, up until verse 31, is just talking about the destruction of the temple, which will happen in A.D. 70. Others believe that Jesus is only talking about the second coming and is not talking about the destruction of the temple. A third stance, one that I personally hold, is that it's both. Okay, it's tricky. I think Jesus is speaking of the imminent destruction of the temple, which again is going to occur 40 years from the conversation he's currently having, which also serves as a type or a foreshadow of end-time events. So prophecies in um, prophetic books, so you have the prophetic books in the Old Testament, you have some prophetic passages like this one, you have a prophetic book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. They have what is often called a near-view, far-view fulfillment. 
and that a prophecy is given and it becomes partially fulfilled in the near view, in the near future. But then there's also a far view, distant fulfillment that has yet to come. So again, I think uh, an illustration I heard just helped bring me some clarity to kind of get my hands around this. Um, in that uh, if you are driving on a road and you have a mountain range ahead of you, uh, it's more common out west than it probably is here. We do have a picture, like let's just say a road that you'd be out and you have that mountain range ahead of you. From where you stand in your car, you would say all those mountains are right next to each other. But if you keep driving on the road through any mountain range, what do you find? One shows up and you drive past it and you still have others that are still on the horizon. At times they can be miles apart from one another. So from where you stand at one point, they all look like they're in the future, but then as you go, you pass one, then you pass another one, then you pass another one. They're not all stacked next to each other. And I think that gives you a good word picture of how prophecies are viewed in the Bible. That some events are going to happen near term, others are going to happen farther, some are going to uh, happen in AD 70, and then others are still waiting their fulfillment. I think that's the best way to read Mark chapter 13. You might disagree. But why do I lean that way? Well, Jesus made the comment that not one stone will be left happening in the temple. They're walking out of the temple, they're looking at the stone, they're saying not one of these stones will be left on top of one another, and then... The disciples come to him and say, what, when will these things happen? What are these things? These things is the destruction of the temple in response to what he just said. But it's a little more complicated than that because the common thought amongst Jews in this day was that the temple would not be destroyed until the end times. That this permanent structure of God where the glory of God dwelled would not be destroyed until the end times had come. So in their minds, they thought that those were the same thing, that whenever this temple is destroyed, that means it's the end times. Uh, we know this from Matthew's account because the question that they asked Jesus was, asked, was recorded a little bit differently that provides some clarity. Matthew 24, 3. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see, so in their mind, they thought destruction of the temple and times happening at the same time. Jesus knows it's not. But he's going to answer this question because Jesus has near view, far view in mind. And so let's spend the rest of our time just digging into what's Jesus actually saying. Because again, this conversation can just get a life of its own and snowball. But what's he actually saying? And I want to pay special attention to the commands. The commands he gives. You have a call to action to them, to the church in present day, in light of the future. What are those commands? Number one. See that no one leads you astray. It's the first thing he's going to say before he even really breaks into it. He says, now, do not be led astray. You don't say that unless there's a very good possibility we can be led astray. Okay, so first, ski pole in mind. Be on guard. Signaling to us that, again, it's easy to drift on this. It was true then and it's true now. So pay attention. Don't be blindsided by this. By what? That many will come in my name saying, I am he. That many are going to come and, and pretend to be Christ, a false prophet in the second coming. Many are going to say, I am him. Do not be led astray. And the apostles who are asking him this, this will happen in their lifetime. We see it recorded in Acts chapter 5, again in chapter 8, most notably in Acts chapter 13, the, kind of the start of the church. We get these stories of these men who claim to be false prophets, who claim to be the coming of the Messiah. 
and it's continued to happen all throughout history. False prophets claiming to be some form of the Messiah, and it's happened far more recently and far more closely than you think. In 1964, a movement started out of South Korea. A man named, might be saying this wrong, An Song Hong, claimed to be Jesus in the second coming. Start with a few little movement in South Korea, a few churches. You go, all right, whatever. He duped some people and then ended, but it didn't. Fast forward to 2000, it had 300 churches, including its first one in the United States. By 2008, 21st century, right? We're more smarter than that now. It's been its fastest growth since. In 2008, it boasted 1 million registered members in the church. By 2018, it's had more than, it has more than 8,000 churches across the world. It recently changed its name to the World Mission Society Church of God, or short, Church of God. And that might ring a bell. You know why? There's a church in Ridgewood, the World Mission Society Church of God. Its members are known for their evangelistic techniques to approach people at shopping malls, other public places, where they ask somebody if they've heard of Mother God. Has anyone been approached by somebody and asked if they heard of Mother God? Look around a little bit. It's a lot of hands. You know what happened to An Song Hong, who was the return of Jesus? He died in 1985. But before he died, conveniently, he transferred his divine identity of the return of Christ to a woman who is the current head of the church, who is still living in her 70s. And they consider her the living embodiment of Mother God. 8,000 churches, over 1 million members, Ridgewood, New Jersey. See that no one leads you astray. This is not fantasy world. This is the real deal. And so you might be sitting there thinking, man, like, I would never fall for that. That's crazy. Um, Let me tell you what the greater point is here. It is easy for us in this world to be led astray. Uh, Astray from what? that Jesus Christ is the absolute center of our life, that only he is the Messiah. And, and so that, and, and not just the level of like, yeah, yeah, Jesus down the cross, I'm in, I'm good on that, I prayed that prayer, I did that, but, and then what happens is we often go live a life and act like he doesn't even exist. Like Christ-centered living is what we're after, and so being led astray is being anything else, whether a person or something else being put in the center of your life, like even good things, like your career, or your title at work or in the community, or how famous and how many followers you have on social media, how much money you make, what kind of relationship you're in, friendship, marriage, relationship with your kids. Bible will call these things potential idols. Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, meaning that things that are good things that we're thankful for in our lives, they make for a good gift, they make for terrible gods. And the biggest mistake that we can make and be led astray is take something else that God's given us as a gift and putting it in Jesus' place, the center of our life, where we find our primary worth, identity, and joy in. And so this isn't much farther from your life than maybe you first thought. The first thing Jesus commands in the whole discussion, do not be led astray. If you're not aware, not watchful, you're going to drift. You will find yourself consumed to something that will overpromise and underdeliver. That's number one. Number two, do not be alarmed. 
So we start with do not be led astray. That's one ski pole. And you kind of drift to this side. But he says, oh, put the other one up. Do not be alarmed. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be anxious. Be on guard, but don't be anxious. And he goes on that this will all happen, but the end is not yet. What will happen? Well, again, I think near view, the destruction of the temple. It will happen in a lot of these guys' lifetime. Far view, the end of the age. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes, there'll be famines, and that will just be the beginning of the creation's birth pains. Like, on the surface, like, let's be honest, this seems like a ridiculous statement made by Jesus. Like, how can you not be alarmed by war and nations going to war and earthquakes and famines? You know what those things all have in common? They're alarming. (laughs) So Jesus says that and goes, but don't be alarmed. Those things will signal the end, but they won't be the end in and of themselves. Those are trials, those are tribulations, but just that their mere presence does not automatically mean the end is here. And so now we have the vantage point of 2,000 years of history since he said this. We know this has been true. There's never been a point in the last 2,000 years where somebody in the world was not at war with somebody else. Earthquakes are regular occurrences. Unfortunately, famines still occur worldwide. The most recent epidemic that you might not have heard of was South Sudan in 2017. Like these things will happen and continue to happen, but don't assume that means the end is here. And I think what often happens to the people who claim to know we are certainly in the end times, what they do, they they get their chart, they got the world events, they're going to pinpoint to this passage and they're going to go where we are. And you know what they're doing in doing that? They're causing alarm. And Jesus just said, do not be alarmed. And yet their whole business model is based on alarming people because that's going to lead to more books and more views and more clicks and all the rest. But Jesus says, this is just the beginning of birth pains. When a woman is in labor, the pains accelerate the closer she gets to giving birth. I've been in the room. This is a word picture. It's very clear in my experiential memory. And my role as supportive husband, I'll be honest, four tries, I'm a mixed bag, okay? There was at one point I told Rochelle not to breathe, just push. Like, the doctor stopped and was like, Dad, no. Like, pointed at me and I like, like stood back like, okay, okay, breathe, breathe, breathe. But history, all of history is headed toward the end of the age. Every day, we are a day closer. It's going somewhere. And the intensity of wars and earthquakes and famines will intensify. So are we in the end times? I can't can't say we're not, but I really can't say we are. Like, things seem more intense than they did 100 years ago, 200 years ago. But again, do I have contemporary bias? Maybe. Will things be more intense 200 years from now? Maybe. But all I do know is from what Jesus is saying, he says, regardless of whether we are or we're not, do not be alarmed. Number three, be on your guard. So back to the other ski pole, right? We, we got one, we're, we're drifting that way. Nope, we're on balance, and then we're drifting this way. Nope, we're not going to be alarmed, and yet we're going to drift this way again. We might have potential to neglect it. Nope, be on your guard. Hold the tension. Keep watch. Stand firm. And Jesus really shifts the conversation here. Because up until now, he's talking global. Global events global wars, the destruction of the temple within the Roman Empire, fractures in the creation and natural disasters. But now he directs his gaze at these four men and he talks to them directly. Fellas, they're going to deliver you to councils. 
You're going to be beaten. You're going to stand before governors and be called to witness about your faith. So hang on a second. In a chapter about the end times, he also starts talking about something that's not about the end times necessarily. He says, this is something you will experience in your lifetime. And we know it did because we, again, read the book of Acts. We know what happened there. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, with courage, got the word out, and fierce opposition would come to try and shut them up and shut down this kind of Jesus movement that is now starting to happen. And he just says, brothers, it's going to happen. And you can't stand down. Do not neglect the truth inside of you because when the time comes, you need to bear witness no matter what consequences you're going to face and they're going to be harsh. This isn't prosperity gospel, is it? Like, this doesn't sound like the guys on TV, does it? Where, like, you believe in Jesus and everything's just going to go well for you. It's going to make you healthy and it's going to make you happy and it's going to make you um, healthy, happy, wealthy and, and, and nothing's going to go hard for you and you're, he's just going to blaze your trail and it's going to be easy. Um, Jesus just said, no, no, no. You're going to bear witness about me, and it's going to get really hard. So be on your guard. You're going to become public enemy number one, and you've got to keep watch. And then he adds a line that seems to stand in isolation to the whole text, but he says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. This verse is often plucked out of Mark 13 and used to kind of rally the troops for global missions. We love global missions here at Grace Church, But taken in context, I think sometimes this verse can be abused. Because what's he actually saying here in the midst of this conversation? He's given them a little preview to the Great Commissioning after he dies and rises again. After he dies, he's going to be raised from the dead. And before he ascends to heaven, he will tell his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. He had never told them that up to that point. Up to this point, he goes, stay quiet. Don't tell anybody. Just hang this in here. Go out to the Jews for your two by two, but then come back. But now the breakthrough is going to come after he dies and raises to life and says, go to all nations. And whose job will it be to get to the gospel to all nations? These guys who are nervous and they're anxious and they're wondering when it's going to happen. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and the others. And yet God's going to fill them with the Holy Spirit and they are going to be the spark plug. So be on your guard. Do not neglect this. It's the most important job you're going to have. That when you are put before these councils, when you are flogged in the synagogues, you're going to bear witness. And this is how people will come to know the power of Jesus Christ. And this is how the gospel will go out to all nations, through the boldness and the awareness of faithful men and women who will not shy away from the truth. Number four, do not be anxious. Where are we going? The other ski pole. You see how he's just bouncing back and forth here? Do not be on guard, but now again, don't be anxious. Back and forth he goes. And and just put yourself again in these guys' shoes. They are overlooking Jerusalem, where this mighty temple stands. The temple that is run by the Sanhedrin, all right, this basically Jewish mob of powerful, prideful men. And Jesus is telling them, you're going to be flogged, you're going to be questioned, and yet the job to get the the gospel to all the nations is on you. You know what that would make me? Anxious. And then Jesus follows all that and says, do not be anxious when you get to that point. And then even when he says after that, it's really not doing much to calm my anxiety. It's going to hit families too. Brothers will be delivered to brothers over to death. Fathers are going to turn on their children. 
children are going to expose their parents. This is going to be awful. Again, my opinion, imminent, he's talking about 80-70, but giving you a picture of what happened at the end of the age, and it's going to be broken, it's going to be painful. And the icing on the cake, that kind of explains it all, says you're, you're going to be hated because of me. Like, can you imagine what these four were thinking when Jesus tells them this? Like, I think they were looking for a date. Like, Jesus, when will these things happen? Just tell like, give me a range. Like, 30 years, 50 years, next Tuesday, what, what are we looking at? And Jesus gives them this. Instead, Jesus gives them ski poles. A realistic look at what it'll look like to be a father of Christ in a fallen world, in a world where Christ has already come to overcome the power of evil but has not yet come to root out the presence of it. It's the world in between the first and the second comings. It's the era of the church. It's the era that we're still in, in the church. Grace Church, 2019. You know what Jesus gave us? Ski poles. Be on guard, but do not be anxious. And we have much to cover in this chapter next week in part two, but for today, I just want to sit here and end here. How are we supposed to live in the present in light of the end times? Be on guard, but don't be anxious. So how are you doing with those two things? Do you know which one you tend to get off balance with? You know which pole you tend to ditch? You need to know in your own life, in your own heart. Are you standing guard Are you keeping watch over your life? Are you aware of what's happening around you, in you, so that you're not being led astray from the truth of the gospel, either by other people or just other things in your life? Let me ask you this. Are you paying attention to what you allow yourself to read? We read so much in so many ways, and I love it. I love consuming it, but are you aware of what you're looking at, of what you're just allowing your eyes to see? Do you know what's coming into your home? Do you know what's influencing the life of your children? We can't use the crutch of like, oh, I don't know technology. Like, you got to figure it out because your kids are going to know. Do you know what's coming to your home? Are you keeping watch? Are you intentional with how you spend your time? Defending against wasting it with just needless and oftentimes sinful distractions that rob our affection for the Lord and our time with the Lord. You know, John Piper says it like this. One of the great uses of Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. It's what the Apostle Paul means when he says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. Listen, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. You know what not being on guard looks like? It looks like just wasting our lives with oftentimes needless, trivial things and being consumed by them while the main purpose of our life of walk, listening and watching out for how we walk should be the most important. Are you aware of how you spend your time? Andy Steen, member, elder of our church, wrote a blog two weeks ago on our site. I encourage you to go read it. It's just called Watch. And it challenges the church to keep watch, not only over yourselves, but one another. That that is one of the purposes of a church and being part of a body, is that your job is not just to watch yourself, but to play a part in watching over others as well in the church body. Why? Because we are prone to wander. We're prone to be led astray, to neglect what is most important, and it is our job to watch out for one another. 
And then, secondly, how's your right ski pole? Do not be anxious. Being on guard means you're going to notice some things. You're going to see some things that are going to be tough to see. You're going to be exposed in the middle of some situations that are going to be tough to handle. The kind of things that can cause anxiety. The brokenness of the world brings about anxiety. A fear of the unknown produces anxiety. Anxiety, you've heard this, can actually be defined by living out the future before it comes. So the opposite of neglecting to watch and stand guard is to actually try to be in the future before it comes. And you know what that makes us? Anxious. And the anxiousness in Mark 13 is not just about end times. It's about any kind of trial and tribulation that might come in the future. And like this is not irrelevant to today, right? There are seemingly an endless amount of articles and blogs and studies by both non-Christian and Christian sources that tell us we are in an unbelievably anxious age. Like borderline epidemic. And even in my limited scope of a local church pastor, um, I can say the number one thing that I have been sought out for for help to counsel and refer people to is in the realm of anxiety. And all ages, all demographics, it's not quarantined to one kind of person or one stage of life. It's happening everywhere. And by the way, I fully support and encourage those who come forward and admit they need some kind of help. Like, let me just say loud and clear, it is not wrong to seek after help. Nor does it expose a weak faith or a lack of faith to seek professional help for any kind of mental health issue like anxiety or other things. Just like it would not expose a lack of faith to seek treatment for cancer if you were diagnosed tomorrow. Like God uses the common grace of Christian counseling and in certain situations, medication to provide help. And I know for a fact the fear of the stigma of getting help is holding so many back and it doesn't have to. But here's the life raft that's thrown out to all of us in the choppy waters, the anxious age that we are swimming in, in the midst of this fallen world. There is only one true antidote to anxiety. You know what it is? assurance. If you're anxious about anything, the only way that anxiety is going to go down is if the assurance in that area and realm goes up. And that is why we believe the only bottom foundational source of assurance that will never fail are the promises of Jesus Christ. Promises like the final line in the passage this morning, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the promise that lies beneath all promises. This is the assurance Jesus gives to these four men who are asking them the question that will enable them to move forward in a world that has fallen, that will hate them, that will beat them, that will try and kill them. By the way, three of these four will be killed for their faith. One will just be burned alive and they couldn't kill him, so they exiled him instead. And their death was not in vain. For the one who endures with a salvation that is sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit will be saved. Once you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you may, and let's be honest, probably will face hardship on some level, even if it doesn't get to their level. But he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And in the words of Paul in Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, there's a lot I don't know about the end times. But here's what I do know. Be on guard. And don't be anxious. Because Jesus is Lord. And the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray.